History of England, Chapter Twelve, Part Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X.O-R-G. Read by Marco at New Orleans, 2007. History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Chapter Twelve, Part Six. The views of Louvois, incomparably the greatest statesman that France had produced since Richelieu, seem to have entirely agreed with those of Avaux. The best thing Louvois wrote that King James could do would be to forget that he had reigned in Great Britain, and to think only of putting Ireland into a good condition, and of establishing himself firmly there. Whether this were the true interest of the House of Stuart may be doubted, but it was undoubtedly the true interest of the House of Bourbon. About the Scotch and English exiles, and especially about Melfort, Avaux constantly expressed himself with an asperity hardly to be expected from a man of so much sense and experience. Melfort was in a singularly unfortunate position. He was a renegade. He was a mortal enemy of the liberties of his country. He was of a bad and tyrannical nature, and yet he was, in some sense, a patriot. The consequence was that he was more universally detested than any man of his time for while his apostasy and his arbitrary maxims of government made him the abhorrence of england and scotland his anxiety for the dignity and integrity of the empire made him the abhorrence of the irish and of the french the first question to be decided was whether james should remain at dublin or should put himself at the head of his army in ulster on this question the irish and british factions joined battle reasons of no great weight were adduced on both sides for neither party ventured to speak out the point really in issue was whether the king should be in Irish or in British hands. If he remained at Dublin, it would be scarcely possible for him to withhold his assent from any bill presented to him by the Parliament which he had summoned to meet there. He would be forced to plunder, perhaps to attaint, innocent Protestant gentlemen and clergymen by hundreds, and he would thus do irreparable mischief to his cause on the other side of St. George's Channel. If he repaired to Ulster, he would be within a few hours' sail of Great Britain. As soon as Londonderry had fallen, and it was universally supposed that the fall of Londonderry could not be long delayed, he might cross the sea with part of his forces and land in Scotland, where his friends were supposed to be numerous. When he was once on British ground and in the midst of British adherents, it would no longer be in the power of the Irish to extort his consent to their schemes of spoliation and revenge. The discussions in the council were long and warm. Tyrconnell, who had just been created a duke, advised his master to stay in Dublin. Melfort exhorted his majesty to set out for Ulster. Avo exerted all his influence in support of Tyrconnell. But James, whose personal inclinations were naturally on the British side of the question, determined to follow the advice of Melfort. Avo was deeply mortified. In his official letters he expressed with great acrimony his contempt for the king's character and understanding. On Tyrconnell, who had said that he despaired of the fortunes of James, and that the real question was between the King of France and the Prince of Orange, the ambassador pronounced what was meant to be a warm eulogy, but may perhaps be more properly called an invective. If he were a born Frenchman, he could not be more zealous for the interests of France. The conduct of Melfort, on the other hand, was a subject of an invective which much resembles eulogy. He is neither a good Irishman nor a good Frenchman. All his affections are set on his own country. Since the king was determined to go northward, Avo did not choose to be left behind. The royal party set out, leaving Tyrconnell in charge at Dublin, and arrived at Charlemont on the 13th of April. The journey was a strange one. The country all along the road had been completely deserted by the industrious population and laid waste by bands of robbers. This, said one of the French officers, is like traveling through the deserts of Arabia. 
Whatever effects the colonists had been able to remove were at Londonderry or Anniskillen. The rest had been stolen or destroyed. Avo informed his court that he had not been able to get one truss of hay for his horses without sending five or six miles. No laborer dared bring anything for sale, lest some marauder should lay hands on it by the way. The ambassador was put one night into a miserable tap-room full of soldiers smoking, another night into a dismantled house without windows or shutters to keep out the rain. At Charlemont a bag of oatmeal was, with great difficulty, and as a matter of favor, procured for the French legation. There was no wheaten bread except at the table of the king, who had brought a little flour from Dublin, and to whom Avaux had lent a servant who knew how to bake. Those who were honored with an invitation to the royal table had their bread and wine measured out to them. Everybody else, however high in rank, ate horse corn and drank water, or detestable beer made with oats instead of barley, and flavored with some nameless herb as a substitute for hops. Yet report said that the country between Charlemont and Straban was even more desolate than the country between Dublin and Charlemont. It was impossible to carry a large stock of provisions. The roads were so bad, and the horses so weak, that the baggage wagons had all been left far behind. The chief officers of the army were consequently in want of necessaries, and the ill-humor which was the natural effect of these privations was increased by the insensibility of James, who seemed not to be aware that everybody about him was not perfectly comfortable. On the 14th of April the king and his train proceeded to Oma. The rain fell, the wind blew, the horses could scarcely make their way through the mud and in the face of the storm, and the road was frequently intersected by torrents, which might almost be called rivers. The travelers had to pass several fords where the water was breast-high. Some of the party fainted from fatigue and hunger. All around lay a frightful wilderness. In a journey of forty miles Avo counted only three miserable cabins. Everything else was rock, bog, and moor. When at length the travelers reached Oma, they found it in ruins. The Protestants, who were the majority of the inhabitants, had abandoned it, leaving not a wisp of straw nor a cask of liquor. The windows had been broken, the chimneys had been beaten in, the very locks and bolts of the doors had been carried away. Avaux had never ceased to press the king to return to Dublin, but these expostulations had hitherto produced no effect. The obstinacy of James, however, was an obstinacy which had nothing in common with manly resolution, and which, though proof to argument, was easily shaken by caprice. He received at Oma, early on the 16th of April, letters which alarmed him. He learned that a strong body of Protestants was in arms at Straben, and that English ships of war had been seen near the mouth of Loch Foyle. In one minute three messages were sent to summon Avo to the ruinous chamber in which the royal bed had been prepared. There James, half-dressed, and with the air of a man bewildered by some great shock, announced his resolution to hasten back instantly to Dublin. Avo listened, wondered, and approved. Melfort seemed prostrated by despair. The travellers retraced their steps, and late in the evening reached Charlemont. There the king received despatches very different from those which had terrified him a few hours before. The Protestants who had assembled near Straben had been attacked by Hamilton. Under a true-hearted leader they would doubtless have stood their ground, but Lundy, who commanded them, had told them that all was lost, had ordered them to shift for themselves, and had set them the example of flight. They had accordingly retired in confusion to Londonderry. The King's correspondence pronounced it to be impossible that Londonderry should hold out. His Majesty had only to appear before the gates, and they would instantly fly open. James now changed his mind again, blamed himself for having been persuaded to turn his face southward, and, though it was late in the evening, called for his horses. The horses were in a miserable plight, but weary and half-starved as they were, they were saddled. Melfort, completely victorious, carried off his master to the camp. 
Avaux, after remonstrating to no purpose, declared that he was resolved to return to Dublin. It may be suspected that the extreme discomfort which he had undergone had something to do with this resolution, for complaints of that discomfort make up a large part of his letters, and in truth a life passed in the palaces of Italy, in the neat parlours and gardens of Holland, and in the luxurious pavilions which adorned the suburbs of Paris, was a bad preparation for the ruined hovels of Ulster. He gave, however, to his master a more weighty reason for refusing to proceed northward. The journey of James had been undertaken in opposition to the unanimous sense of the Irish, and had excited great alarm among them. They apprehended that he meant to quit them, and to make a descent on Scotland. They knew that, once landed in Great Britain, he would have neither the will nor the power to do those things which they most desired. Avo, by refusing to proceed further, gave them an assurance that whoever might betray them, France would be their constant friend. While Avo was on his way to Dublin, James hastened toward Londonderry. He found his army concentrated a few miles south of the city. The French generals who had sailed with him from Brest were in his train, and two of them, Rosen and Maumont, were placed over the head of Richard Hamilton. Rosen was a native of Livonia, who had in early youth become a soldier of fortune, who had fought his way to distinction, and who, though utterly destitute of the graces and accomplishments characteristic of the court of Versailles, was nevertheless high in favor there. His temper was savage, his manners were coarse, his language was a strange jargon compounded of various dialects of French and German. Even those who thought best of him, and who maintained that his rough exterior covered some good qualities, owned that his looks were against him, and that it would be unpleasant to meet such a figure in the dusk at the corner of a wood. The little that is known of Maumont is to his honor. In the camp it was generally expected that Londonderry would fall without a blow. Rosen confidently predicted that the mere sight of the Irish army would terrify the garrison into submission. But Richard Hamilton, who knew the temper of the colonists better, had misgivings. The assailants were sure of one important ally within the walls. Lundy, the governor, professed the Protestant religion, and had joined in proclaiming William and Mary, but he was in secret communication with the enemies of his church, and of the sovereigns to whom he had sworn fealty. Some have suspected that he was a concealed Jacobite, and that he had affected to acquiesce in the revolution, only in order that he might be better able to assist in bringing about a restoration. But it is probable that his conduct is rather to be attributed to faint-heartedness and poverty of spirit than to zeal for any public cause. He seems to have thought resistance hopeless, and in truth, to a military eye, the defences of Londonderry appeared contemptible. The fortifications consisted of a simple wall overgrown with grass and weeds. There was no ditch even before the gates. The drawbridges had long been neglected. The chains were rusty and could scarcely be used. The parapets and towers were built after a fashion which might well move disciples of Vauban to laughter, and these feeble defences were on almost every side commanded by heights. Indeed, those who laid out the city had never meant that it should be able to stand a regular siege, and had contented themselves with throwing up works sufficient to protect the inhabitants against a tumultuary attack of the Celtic peasantry. Avaux assured Louvois that a single French battalion would easily storm such defences. Even if the place should, notwithstanding all disadvantages, be able to repel a large army, directed by the science and experience of generals who had served under Condé and Turenne, hunger must soon bring the contest to an end. The stock of provisions was small, and the population had been swollen to seven or eight times the ordinary number by the multitude of colonists flying from the rage of the natives. Lundy, therefore, from the time when the Irish army entered Ulster, seemed to have given up all thought of serious resistance. He talked so despondingly that the citizens and his own soldiers murmured against him. He seemed, they said, to be bent on discouraging them. Meanwhile the enemy drew daily nearer and nearer, and it was known that James himself was coming to take command of his forces.
Just at this moment a glimpse of hope appeared. On the 14th of April, ships from England anchored in the bay. They had on board two regiments which had been sent, under the command of a colonel named Cunningham, to reinforce the garrison. Cunningham and several of his officers went on shore and conferred with Lundy. Lundy dissuaded them from landing their men. The place, he said, could not hold out. To throw more troops into it would therefore be worse than useless, for the more numerous the garrison, the more prisoners would fall into the hands of the enemy. The best thing that the two regiments could do would be to sail back to England. He meant, he said, to withdraw himself privately, and the inhabitants must then try to make good terms for themselves. He went through the form of holding a council of war, but from this council he excluded all those officers of the garrison whose sentiments he knew to be different from his own. Some who had ordinarily been summoned on such occasions, and who now came uninvited, were thrust out of the room. Whatever the governor said was echoed by his creatures. Cunningham and Cunningham's companions could scarcely venture to oppose their opinion to that of a person whose local knowledge was necessarily far superior to theirs, and whom they were, by their instructions, directed to obey. One brave soldier murmured, Understand this, he said, to give up Londonderry is to give up Ireland. But his objections were contemptuously overruled. The meeting broke up. Cunningham and his officers returned to the ships and made preparations for departing. Meanwhile, Lundy privately sent a messenger to the headquarters of the enemy, with assurances that the city should be peaceably surrendered on the first summons. But as soon as what had passed in the council of war was whispered about the streets, the spirit of the soldiers and citizens swelled up high and fierce against the dastardly and perfidious chief who had betrayed them. Many of his own officers declared that they no longer thought themselves bound to obey him. Voices were heard threatening, some that his brains should be blown out, some that he should be hanged on the walls. A deputation was sent to Cunningham, imploring him to assume the command. He excused himself on the plausible ground that his orders were to take direction in all things from the governor. Meanwhile it was rumored that the persons most in Lundy's confidence were stealing out of the town one by one. Long after dusk on the evening of the 17th, it was found that the gates were open and that the keys had disappeared. The officers who made the discovery took on themselves to change the passwords and to double the guards. The night, however, passed without any assault. After some anxious hours, the day broke. The Irish, with James at their head, were now within four miles of the city. A tumultuous council of the chief inhabitants was called. Some of them vehemently reproached the governor to his face with his treachery. He had sold them, they cried, to their deadliest enemy. He had refused admission to the force which good King William had sent to defend them. While the altercation was at the height, the sentinels who paced the ramparts announced that the vanguard of the hostile army was in sight. Lundy had given orders that there should be no firing, but his authority was at an end. Two gallant soldiers, Major Henry Baker and Captain Adam Murray, called the people to arms. They were assisted by the eloquence of an aged clergyman, George Walker, rector of the parish of Dunamore, who had, with many of his neighbors, taken refuge in Londonderry. The whole of the crowded city was moved by one impulse. Soldiers, gentlemen, yeomen, artisans rushed to the walls and manned the guns. James, who, confident of success, had approached within a hundred yards of the southern gate, was received with a shout of, No surrender! and with a fire from the nearest bastion. An officer of his staff fell dead by his side. The king and his attendants made all haste to get out of reach of the cannonballs. Lundy, who was now in imminent danger of being torn limb from limb by those whom he had betrayed, hid himself in an inner chamber. There he lay during the day, and at night, with the generous and politic connivance of Murray and Walker, made his escape in the disguise of a porter. The part of the wall from which he let himself down is still pointed out, 
and people still living talk of having tasted the fruit of a pear tree which assisted him in his descent. His name is to this day held in execration by the Protestants of the north of Ireland, and his effigy was long, and perhaps still is, annually hung and burned by them, with marks of abhorrence similar to those which in England are appropriated to Guy Fawkes. End of Part 6 